From Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serra. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, RV, camper, taxi, your parents' well-appointed basement with a simulated wood paneling, electric fireplace, and the painting of dogs playing poker, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. Robert W. Sullivan IV stays with us as we continue to delve into esoteric and occult symbolism in cinema. Again, Robert is an historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, radio TV personality, uh, best-selling author, CEO, and lawyer, the author of five books, including The Royal Arch of Enoch, Cinema Symbolism 1, Cinema Symbolism 2, A Pact with the Devil, which is a work of fiction, and his latest is Cinema Symbolism 3, The Mysteries of Occult Hollywood Unveiled. All right, so let's talk about life imitating art and 9-11 which kind of this motif in a number of films for maybe like a five-year period six-year period leading up to 9-11 this 9-11 motif we see it is running throughout these movies what's going on there let's talk about there's a a comedy i remember with uh, dan Aykroyd and i think it was bill murray and bob hope had a cameo in it it was called spies like us there's a 9-11 motif there well, right. There's two things that are a little separate. There's the symbolism in film leading up to it, which is, you know, the, the 9-11 little clues in these Gnostic films right up before the event. What I put in the book was, of course, with 9-11, if you're going to presume, um, and again, I underline the word presume that this was a government conspiracy or this was an inside job, I guess is the better word to use. One of the things that, of course, is always pointed out was that the buildings were brought down in a controlled demolition. And this clearly seems to be the case with Building 7. And the idea was that planes hit the Twin Towers and that According to the Newtonian physics, the tops should have slid off to the side. They should have followed the path of least resistance. Instead, they collapse into their own footprint, which kind of defies Newtonian gravitational theory. So the hypothesis then is that these buildings were pulled in a controlled demolition. So if we're going to go down that rabbit hole, then it begs the next question. Well, if they're going to be pulled in a controlled demolition, how these buildings had to get wired for, you know, these buildings had to be wired with thermite cutting charges to cut the load-bearing members and support columns to bring these buildings come crashing down. So how was this done? I mean, let's just continue to hypothesize here. Well, of course, if we're going to go down this rabbit hole, like I said, then obviously someone had to plant these explosives to carry this out. When I was looking into this, believe it or not, and I was stunned when I found this out, was that there was a renovation project to the building's elevators. This was the Twin Towers that was started in January of 2001 and lasted all the way up through August of 2001. And you would think to yourself that if you're going to hire someone to repair elevators and do elevator renovation or you know, escalator renovation or whatever the whole buildings, you would call Otis Elevator. I mean, they're the world's biggest one. They're the, you know, everyone knows you can't get on an escalator elevator with seeing Otis on it. But this wasn't the case. The company was called the Ace Elevator Company, which has subsequently vanished. They don't exist. And when I saw that name, the first thing that just popped into my head was, oh, I thought, well, if this was an inside job, whoever put this thing together obviously must have been a fan of the movie Spies Like Us. Because if you ever saw that movie, the name of the company that carries out the government wet works and black operations was called the Ace Tomato Company. 
very similar. <laughs> and what makes it even stranger was the, I think the to access Ace Tomato Company, you had to go down a giant elevator, if I remember correctly. But I always thought that was strange. I thought, well, that's interesting. I guess if, if we're presuming, and again, I use the word presume, that this was an inside job, clearly they must have taken inspiration or, or been inspired or copied the name of this company, Ace Elevator Company, and used it from Spies Like Us, this 1985 film, to generate the Ace Elevator Company. The parallels are too striking. So just their own little inside joke, I guess. I guess so. All right. So let's talk about 9-11 imaging in films. Sure. Vanilla Sky, The Matrix, Fight Club. Well, let's start with Vanilla Sky. Right. You're absolutely correct. You have this whole slate of Gnostic films. I mean, it goes back even further, but you have the slate of Gnostic films that came out right around 9-11 or before it. Vanilla Sky was filmed before 9-11, where the end of the movie is just very eerie to the whole 9-11 incident, where... The film was made before 9-11. The movie was released in December of 01. And if you've seen Vanilla Sky, you'll know at the very end, I guess I'm spoiling the movie here a little bit, where the Tom Cruise character goes up on this incredibly high skyscraper, actually overlooking the Twin Towers. You can see them in the background. I won't get into the whole movie. It would be too long and dragged out. But he has to jump off the building to awaken the consciousness. And you see him leap off and plummet down this building. And, of course, when you're watching this, you think immediately of the people having to leap off it's very poignant. It's very sad, leaping off the World Trade Centers, plunging to their deaths, as it were. And when that movie came out, I believe Cameron Crowe was the director. There was a considerable effort put upon him to remove that scene or to change it around because of 9-11, which had just happened. But he refused. He, he left it in. And I'm, I'm glad he did because it's very poignant and it does resonate. So, you know, you have Vanilla Sky, which is one. You have The Matrix, of course, which is Neo's passport expires on September 11, 2001. You have the exact date and you have the entire theme of awakening to consciousness. You know, again, maybe this whole thing with the platonic year changeover from Pisces to Aquarius. Just one hypothetical fight club. You have the demolition of the two buildings at the end. I believe fight club came out in 99. And then you also have the scene in it where the space monkeys destroy the piece of corporate art, which is very reminiscent to the sphere which used to sit in the plaza of the World Trade Center. So that was interesting. And then you have the one kind of thing that I always found, it was like a ley line almost, only it works through time, not on the earth, was you have this sequencing where 9-11, of course, happened on September 11, which two years before Fight Club, I think, was released on like September 21st, right around. 9-11. And then you go back a few years later where you have the one Simpson episode where Homer goes to New York City and, of course, Bart waves the money in front of the program with 9-11 on it. The name of the episode, I believe, is called Homer Simpson versus New York City. That was released. That aired on, like, September 10th, 1996. So you have this kind of, like, sequential timeline pointing right towards 9-11. It's weird. Oh, it's beyond weird. You could go back in time, even, with this, where you have movies like Escape from New York, where the plane crashes into uh, Air Force One, crashes into lower Manhattan. You have the Donnie Darko movie, which was released a month after 9-11, again, filmed before 9-11, which involved a plane crash. And again, because I'm spoiling it a little here, where the jet engine comes crashing down through Donnie's bedroom through an American flag. And actually, Richard Kelly, who directed the movie, actually did an interview, and he blamed that scene on the movie being a bit of a commercial failure. He thought people stayed away from it because it was too reminiscent to 9-11. 
so yeah, I mean, in Hollywood, in these movies, you do have this prophesizing, as it were, of 9-11. And it's there. I it's on rap it. albums. It's on the Simpson episode. It's in... So what is behind this? Let's assume that the producers, uh, the writers on The Simpsons don't have a pipeline into Al-Qaeda or the deep state or whoever is responsible for that heinous crime. Sure. What else could explain predictive programming? Because if there, you know, we can talk about some other examples besides 9-11, like the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight, the Batman movie where – we see on a map Sandy Hook, of course, where the, that horrible school shooting was, that massacre. What's happening here? Yeah, there's better ones than that. There's the Kobe Bryant one from The Legends of Chamberlain Heights where Kobe Bryant dies in a helicopter accident. The better one, even the best one, I guess, is Three Mile Island, which was the China Syndrome, which was about a nuclear reactor melting down. I think it came out a week beforehand. So, right. So how is this accounted for? One way, and again, this is me hypothesizing here, is that you look at what Carl Jung said regarding the collective unconscious and the archetypes, and could this be, when you're dealing with the application and the making of cinema and it being a creative effort using archetypes, if the collective unconscious is inherited, which is what Jung said, and it's collective so we all share it, is this somehow when it's being applied to art, can it somehow be a predictive mechanism? And when you're talking this, there was a Christian mystic who talked about this. His name was Emanuel Schwettenborg, and he is a rumored Jacobite Freemason. He's a very interesting character, and he didn't have the advent of use of modern psychology, but they talk about things like images coming from the world's soul and meditation on these images coming from the world's soul, the Unis Monday. This is what guys like Gio Dano Bruno also talked about. And what Schwettenberg said was if you meditate on these things and you concentrate on them, you can become prophetic. Schwettenberg actually predicted the date of his own death accurately. And you look at it and you think to yourself, well, if movies are applying the archetypes, is the movie becoming a predictive piece of art, as it were, because it's incorporating the archetype. It's incorporating these images coming from the world's soul, what people like Bruno and Schwettenberg were talking about. What's interesting is, if you break this down even further, you say to yourself, where can I find archetypal imagery? Where's one of the best examples where I could find archetypal imagery? And the answer is the tarot tarot cards you know this is where you find your archetypes the destroyer the tower the sun the moon the lovers the fool this is you know your kind of index of the archetypes what are tarot cards used for where well, they can be you know used for prophecy for predicting the future to see into one's future as it were so this ties into you know this whole use of the archetypes and this is what again people like bruno and especially schwettenborg talked about was if you meditate on these things and you tune into them, you can actually use them somehow, some way to prophesize the future. This could be one explanation as to how these movies somehow seem to be predicting the future. It's one explanation. I'm not saying it's the only one. I'm a lawyer, so I have to present as many as I possibly can. You could certainly craft the argument that Hollywood producers are working with the deep state and the deep state is crafting all these global catastrophes and they're giving it to Hollywood. That's one possibility. Maybe Hollywood elites, filmmakers are conjuring demons or have crystal bars them, balls, balls themselves. Possible. But certainly what I just said is one possible way 
of trying to explain this. All right, let's talk about Donald Trump because – Oh, yeah, that's a fascinating (laughs) one too. Let's start with the more recent one, which is when he made what was called this inappropriate phone call to the uh, president of Ukraine. And it sounded like – or the the case was being made that it was this quid pro quo call, which it wasn't, uh, but that's another story. But that ultimately led to his impeachment. So we see this – actually kind of play out in a strange way in the movie joker correct yeah i mean i mean there's all kind of crazy stuff going on with donald trump you have the joker movie which was right before the ukrainian impeachment where if you watch joker you have the thomas wayne character which is clearly unmistakably a donald trump analog I mean, no question about that. I mean, he's running for mayor. He's the savior of Gotham. I mean, it's you know, the, I mean, the whole campaign slogan for Thomas Wayne is essentially "Make Gotham Great Again." And you know, right there in that movie, there's a scene where Fleck, this is Joaquin Phoenix, is looking at the newspaper where the papers are beginning to um, pick up on the the exploits of the Joker character. You know, where he shoots the guys down in the subway. And believe it or not, there's actually a little tagline on the um, newspaper that says "Trouble with the Ukraine." And I always thought that was fascinating. You have to actually pause it. It's in the movie. It's hard to see. But if you look at the newspaper, it says problems with the Ukraine or problems in Ukraine. And I thought, oh, God, isn't that strange? I mean, here you have this Thomas Wayne, Donald Trump figure right in there. And you have a clear reference to Ukraine in the movie. And I just found that it's so interesting. I just found that, you know, and it's right beforehand. That's what makes it so astounding. I mean, I think Joker off the top of my head came out in October of 2019. This was like a month or so right before the impeachment thing. And I just found that so fascinating. You know, they were just so close to it. Oh, it's, it's mind boggling. It's absolutely yeah. mind boggling. What about the Lego movie with Donald Trump? Well, that's another one that came out, I believe, in 13 or 14. Um, maybe it was 12. I'd have to go back and look. And you clearly have, again, the president business character who becomes president. He starts off as a businessman um, and he becomes president business is, again, another Donald Trump analog um, stand in personification, call it what you will, where the president business character wants to just build walls around the different Lego universes, sequester them off with walls. (laughs) And he refers to his detractors as snowflakes. Um, You know, I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And then you have right around that same time, um, the Serta mattress ad where Donald Trump hires the Serta mattress sheep, the sleep sheep um, to guard the rooms to his hotels. And, and the numbers on the sheep are 11 and nine, which was November 9th, which was the date that he became president. Again, you know, you just can't, can't make this stuff up. Um, and it's just astounding when you look at it. Well, it, it, even if we go back um, 130 years to the late 19th century, you had sure. Ingersoll Lockwood, this American uh, author and lawyer uh, maybe some similarities between you and Ingersoll Lockwood there, Robert. But he, he was writing these barren Trump novels, right? The, it was the uh, uh, the travels and adventures of little Baron Trump and his wonderful dog, uh, Bolger, and Baron Trump's marvelous underground journey. Like, And he goes to Russia to meet Don. Um, right. Yeah, yeah. The, the, the little Baron Trump starts his adventure by going to Russia to meet Don. Um, fascinating. Um, And what's even more stranger about the whole thing is, and this is in the book, is if you look at the illustration of little Baron Trump, uh, it looks just like the real one. Uh, You know, it looks like the real Baron Trump at that same age. 
Uh, that's what that's what's really peculiar about it. Uh, you know, there's an illustration of what little Baron Trump looks like, and if you look at him and you pull up a picture, and it's in the book of right. what little what Baron Trump looked like at that age, they look identical. And didn't Don the character Don? Um, didn't he use? Didn't he have nicknames for people he didn't like, like the real Donald Trump? You know, Sleepy Joe Biden and and lying Ted Cruz and and um, whatever he called Hillary. Uh, yeah. He had, the character in in the book also had nicknames for his enemies. And then then he wrote Ingersoll Rand also wrote a book, um, I, I, uh, like one another one where a presidential candidate out of nowhere came out of New York and was causing riots in the streets. It's too strange. Absolutely. All right, back with more of my conversation with Robert W. Sullivan the Fourth when the conspiracy show continues. The world is being pulled over your eyes. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. And we are back with Robert W. Sullivan IV. And uh, Cinema Symbolism 3 is his latest. How do we get a copy, Robert? Sure. Um, It's on all the major online retailers, uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. Uh, It's on the Canadian uh, Amazon site. Uh, you can go to my website if you like. Uh, there's links there, uh, robertwsullivaniv.com, or you can just go to Amazon and type the title, and I'm sure it'll come up. And it's all my books are, of course, in the print and ebook edition, the Kindle, you know, the Nook. Um, so you can get whatever you want. And like I said, they're all on all the major online retailers, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million, and that goes for all the international Amazon sites as well. So you can get it in Canada, no problem. All right. So what is occult casting all about? Right, right. This is something that is just uh, a a really interesting study, in my opinion. And this is where um, that's a term that I used. I came up with it myself because I could think of nothing else to call it. Although I think now you could possibly put it under the purview of art of memory, which I can get into. But occult casting is where a filmmaker hires or retains and places in their film a, um, a an actor or an actress for the sole purpose of transferring that actor's or actress's past performance or the themes of that movie into their new movie, um, into the into the new project. So, for example, um, a great example of this would be. Um, like Max von Sydow in the Star Wars The Force Awakens movie where he just appears at the very beginning of it. Um, they could have put anybody there. I mean, they could have put any elderly Hollywood actor there, but they choose von Sydow. And they did that on purpose because his presence is designed to conjure two movies that he was in earlier. Uh, the first is The Exorcist, um, where, of course, he appears at the de- in the desert at the very beginning also, and he confronts uh, the demon, the statue of the demon Pazuzu. And he does the same thing in Star Wars, where he's in the desert and he confronts uh, Kylo Ren, the black-suited Kylo Ren. So what that what that is doing to your subconscious is, is it is transferring this imagery of the exorcist subconsciously into your mind, and it's investing the First Order and Kylo with sort of the demonism, the diabolic nature of uh, the exorcist of Pazuzu. Um, and then the second movie, it's the same sort of thing where it's Dune, where again, Von Sito appears on the desert planet and deals with the Harkonnens, which are also savage. Um, these, you know, the vile monster, Baron Harkonnen and Harkonnen. So again, 
by putting Von Sydow in that movie, um, in the Star Wars movie, what that is doing is subconsciously conjuring, drawing forth his two earlier performances in The Exorcist and uh, Dune, and it's transferring sort of the raw savagery and the evilness um, of uh, The Exorcist and Dune, the Harkonnens and Pazuzu, and putting them in the First Order. That's the way this stuff works. Um, Von Sydow is an example of it. I'd have to think of some others, um, but there are others. I just can't think of them off the, well, off the top of my head. Do you, do you think that when the uh, the casting agent uh, calls Max Von Sydow, the, well, he's no longer with us, but would he be telling him the only reason you're being cast in this no. movie is – no, he's not no. aware of it? No, I think he just I think he just says, hey, you know, let's let's hire. There are other examples of this. Um Maybe maybe the actor is aware of it. It's possible. Um, uh, there are other examples of this. Like I said, I'm just drawing a blank right now off the top of my head. They're in the book. Um, but I, ha- I have documented other examples of this. Uh, Patrick where- Swayze? How about Patrick Swayze oh, yeah, in yeah, that, Do- that, that, Donnie Darko? Yeah, that's a great one. Um, Donnie Darko and Catherine Ross in, in, in Donnie Darko. Um, that is clearly designed. Um, you have the whole idea of Donnie Darko being about disillusioned youth. Um, and the casting of Swayze, well, the casting of Swayze is twofold. One is that movie, Donnie Darko, takes place in 1988 and is filled with 80s cheese. So the casting of Swayze is twofold. One, it's designed to resurrect his 80s movies that he made, like Roadhouse. But specifically, it's designed to resurrect Dirty Dancing, which is, again, a movie that has an undercurrent about disenfranchised youth, excuse me, you know, um, youth being upset with the status quo, um, you know, the the, the underlings, uh, the, the staff at the hotel being kind of suppressed by the adults in the hotel. It's a transitional movie from the 50s to the 60s. And Swayze's appearance is to, is to do the same thing, because if you watch Donnie Darko, it's the same thing. It's about disillusioned youth, and um, that's what uh, Dirty, Dances, Dirty Dancing is about, disillusioned youth. Catherine Ross, same type of scenario. Um, her presence as a psychiatrist is designed to conjure um, uh, The Graduate with Dustin Hoffman, where she played its girlfriend. Same theme a movie about disillusioned youth, the 1960s. Um, so those two actors in um, Donnie Darko are designed to conjure their early performances and 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 uh, transfer this whole sentiment of disillusioned youth, un- unhappiness with the status quo, and transfer it into Donnie Darko, which is, again, um, Donnie Darko, the character, is um, struggling with adults and, um, you know, is, again, one of these disillusioned youth type characters a uh a holding call field as it were right all right let's go to the youtube live chat and mike l asks robert do you have any examples of this occult or esoteric symbology in in the video game industry you know um i'd have to it's it's not off the top of my head i'd have to go and look at it i know for a fact that um, I know the Assassin's Creed movie or movie, the Assassin's Creed video game was using some um, some some stuff on the world of conspiracy with I, I, I had them. I had I, I have a PS3 here, and I, I used to um, I don't really play too much anymore. But I did the assassin, and they, they they had the whole thing with like the Knights Templar and conspiracy stuff like that, and they they had some 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 hidden imagery I think in some of the video games. It's probably there. I've never really paid much attention to it. But if you told me video games were using occult themes and symbols, wouldn't it surprise me? 
All right. Uh, Solar Warden asks, Robert, have you seen the Lone Gunman episode about 9-11 and its glaring, literal, same plan scenario with planes and the towers airing on TV in March of 2001? And your yeah. thoughts? Yeah, that's another one. Um, the Lone Gunman is another one um, of a, another one of these uh, predictive 9-11 movie or uh, TV shows. That was a television show, of course. We're right where the 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 the, uh, um, high, uh, the airliner actually gets hijacked by the government and gets flown was being flown into the World Trade Center. Yes, I'm, I'm familiar with that episode. And that's another great example um, of, of all this, you know, nine, pre pre 9-11 imagery and media. Uh, Kim dot net asks. Robert, can you discuss the possibility of retrocausality and the idea of the future possibly affecting the past? Basically, reverse prophecy. Yeah, I don't know. I'm not too familiar with that one. Uh, that's beyond my skill set, as it were. <laughs> All right. Uh, I wanted to ask you about Stanley Kubrick because, I mean, he- I think you would agree uh, he, he's like the master of creating all of these multiple levels of, of uh, you know, and layers in his films. And people have suggested that The Shining was his way of uh, – the subtext in the film is basically his admission that he was the one that shot the, uh, the lunar landing – the Apollo 11 lunar landing on a soundstage. It was a hoax. And this is him uh, with these little hidden esoteric symbols in The Shining revealing that, in fact, this was, you know, his admission, the lunar landing. He filmed it. It was a hoax. Have you heard that? Yes. The Shining, the Shining is, an, is, an expert, is, a, is a great movie and is overloaded with all sorts of uh, – imagery what kubrick does in that movie is he repeats numbers and themes all over the place that that movie is nothing but repeating doubles and he is doing that to convey the sense of reincarnation that the overlook is just a never-ending ouroboros biting its tail um the thing with nasa is interesting because um there is some truth to this it wasn't necessarily that it was a hoax you could craft the argument that they actually went to the moon but they couldn't film there um and uh that kubrick just filmed the guys hopping around in like a soundstage i believe it i believe it or not this is actually seen in a james bond movie i believe it's diamonds are forever where bond actually winds up in a uh, area 51 like base out in nevada and he goes down into like a basement or something and there's a stanley kubrick analog down there filming the guys hopping around on the moon um but of course in the shining it's the scene we all know about where little danny is playing with uh, the toys stands up wearing the apollo 11 sweater of course this is the rocket launch then goes to room 237 the symbolism being that back in the late 80s the moon was 237,000 miles from the earth so this was kubrick's way of saying you know you know with danny you know symbolically wearing the apollo 11 sweater going to the moon and uh you know going into room 237 and that this was kubrick's way of saying to the world i film the guys hopping around on the moon this isn't as far-fetched as it sounds and for a couple reasons one is um there's rumors out there that um, the government was very impressed with Kubrick's filming of 2001 and Strange Love, and the way he filmed those. And that when they saw those movies, just thought, "Hey, this is the guy. I mean, this is the guy we got to use to film uh, the fake, you know, the fake moon landing. These guys hopping around on a sound studio." Now, again, you could make the argument they actually went to the moon, um, but they just couldn't film there, and Kubrick filmed um, the footage. The smoking gun in all this um, is the movie that no one talks about. 
um, with Kubrick um, and it's Barry Lyndon. Um, this was the movie he made before The Shining, um, and no one, no, no one seems to be aware of this. I talk about it in the book. This is your smoking gun, um, because um, Kubrick used NASA technology to film the movie. Um, Kubrick went to his old buddies at NASA um, and got special lenses to film Barry Lyndon. Um, and the reason why is because Barry Lyndon is a movie about the Napoleonic uh, Wars, takes place in the Napoleonic era. And Kubrick wanted to film the movie and wanted to film scenes in the movie using exclusively candle lighting. Um, well, you know this can't be done if you're familiar with cinema. You could have characters sitting in a dark room with a candle going, but of course you have to have an exterior light shining on them. It'll be too dark. It will never show up. There's no way to film the camera. Um, characters sitting in a room illuminated by candles only. It's too dark. It's too glaring. won't work. NASA developed a lens that allowed you to do this. I forget the name of it, um, but it, it was it was a high it was a high um, focal lens. And when Kubrick requested a couple of these from NASA, and of course, being pals with them, they gave them to him. And he used his um, cinematographer went to work on these lenses lenses, and he actually crafted them. So when you're watching Barry Lyndon, which a Kubrick movie, um, he filmed that using NASA technology. Um, and of course, why, why did he have such access to NASA? And of course, the answer is obvious. He filmed the moon landing for them. <laughs> Fantastic. All right. Good stuff, Robert. Stay put. We'll uh, take another time out. Come back, get to some more calls. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show right after this. Stay with us. Where there's smoke, there's The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. All right, uh, Robert, what is mesmerism and uh, how did Edgar Allan Poe use it? Yeah, mesmerism is a, a early form of hypnotism. This fascinated Edgar Allan Poe. He uses it in several of his short stories. Um, and what what's interesting with Poe is um, he kind of dumps on the occult a little bit, although you find esoteric themes in some of his works. You find mesmerism. The cast of Amontillado is the anti-Masonic movement. Um, the character of Fortunato or Fortuna or whatever his name is, is um, – is, uh, What's his name? The guy I just said, William Morgan, who gets bricked up by the Mason's bricks in the wall, disappears forever. Um, so the Castle of Matalado is a tale about is, is a reflection of the anti-Masonic movement of the 1820s. Um, the guy, the guy who was interacting with Poe, um, and this gets left out, was a guy by the name of um, Ethan Allen Hitchcock at West Point. He was a teacher at West Point, um, and Poe was at West Point and actually was a student of his. Um, Ethan Allen uh, Hitchcock is the grandson, of course, of the Freemason Ethan Allen. The Revolutionary War hero, um, and Ethan Allen Hitchcock was a Rosicrucian. Um, he identified as himself as a Rosicrucian, and um, during the American Civil War, he was the chief advisor to Abraham Lincoln. Um, so you had a Rosicrucian in the White House um, inv- advising Abraham Lincoln during the Civil War, and uh, yeah, Poe. Um, you'll find occult themes in Poe. Like I said, the Castle of Malatalado is um, anti-Masonry with the Fortunato character being William Morgan being bricked up you know, by the Mason's trowel at the end who disappears forever. Mesmerism fascinated Poe. You'll find it in a couple of his stories. The names are escaping me right now. Um, it's, you know, blatant. It's, you know, I'm it'll be on my bedtime right now. So <laughs> no uh, please, for, please forgive me if I can't recall the names of certain things, but no pose an interesting character. And again, the reason I bring that up and I brought it up earlier is I want people to understand that Hollywood's use of occult themes, symbols, esoteric undercurrents is nothing new. 
Um, you will find this in the works of the 19th century writers in America. You'll find this in the works of Richard Wagner, Mozart, William Shakespeare, you know, or Sir Francis Bacon, if you will. Um, yeah, I mean, it's it's this is nothing new to Hollywood. Uh, you've got uh, a, a note here that I, I I wanted to I forgot to ask you about earlier because you mentioned Thomas Aquinas and um, Albertus Magnus. You say they meddled with AI as in artificial intelligence. Yeah, that's that's right. the 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 whole idea of of artificial intelligence. Um, and and the animation of hu- you know of human beings creation of human beings it comes from um, this is millennia old this comes from Kabbalah number one with the idea of golem making uh, this is where you use divine names and divine um, sigils and Hebrew letters to create life um, this is of course Frankenstein's monster Smurfette Frosty the Snowman. Um, this all comes out of the world of Jewish, out of the world of Jewish mysticism, and then of course the Hermetica um, in the in the Latin Asclepius, um, you have the whole idea of what are called Hermetic statues, um, and th- this you know this they talk about um, that man can make statues and animate them, um, you know, and bring these statues to life, and you know they can do whatever they want them to do, and again this parallels, you know, runs parallel with the. Kabbalistic golem, Frankenstein's monster, Frosty the Snowman, Smurfette, what have you. Um, and there were these two Christian saints. I mean, this is you know, you know, part of history allegedly. Anyway, um, a Saint Albertus Magnus apparently used a magic to animate a talking head of brass um, that was you know considered a, a hermetic statue. This talking head of brass was animated through some sort of magic of some kind. Um, and uh, the story goes that um, Thomas Aquinas, of course, the saint, um, smashed it, destroyed the statue because it kept interrupting his studies and he got sick and tired of it and smashed this talking head of brass, this AI, this robot, as it were, because it kept bothering him. Um, so, again, the whole idea of AI um, is nothing new to Hollywood. This goes back um, two millennia, at least. Fascinating. All right. I want to work in some more questions here from the YouTube live chat. Show me the truth. 74 asks, there are tales of sacrifices for power in Hollywood. Uh, Robert, do you have any personal knowledge of a ritual sacrifice? Uh, no, I do not have any personal knowledge of a sacrifice. Um, I've never attended a human sacrifice and I have <laughs> no personal knowledge of a sacrifice. All right. I thought you might answer that way. Yeah. All right. Uh, Stephen Kreshevsky asks, do you have any thoughts on think tanks and lobbyist groups consulting with Hollywood to push certain agendas and al- almost as many that work with the federal government? It's certainly possible. I have no personal knowledge of it, but what that wouldn't surprise me. Um, I mean, I know, for example, um, the one Transformer movie used the movie – I can't remember. There's been so damn many of these things. The one Transformer movie where they're fighting on the pyramid at the end. Um, I think it's the sequel, the sequel Rise of the Fallen, maybe. And the Navy uses the rail gun uh, to blast one of the Transformers. And um, this is true. The Navy had developed the rail gun and actually wanted the Transformer movie to relay it to the world. Because after the movie that came out, the United States Navy said, yeah, that's real. We have a rail gun. And we use this movie to announce it to the world. So... Yeah, the and like I said, the the FBI reviewed um, the X Files scripts for accuracy, and again to repeat, Yankee Doodle Dandy, war propaganda, 
Pentagon, you know, or the War Department. Um, and same thing with the first couple Universal Sherlock Holmes movies with Rathbone and Carl, uh, Rathbone and Karloff, Rathbone and Nigel Bruce. All right, we'll take one final timeout, come back, get to some more questions from the YouTube live chat, more of my conversation with Robert W. Sullivan IV, Cinema Symbolism Three: The Mysteries of Occult, Hollywood Unveiled, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Big Brother is listening, and so are you, to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett. And a few minutes remain with Robert W. Sullivan IV. How do we get a copy of Cinema Symbolism 3? Sure. Uh, you can go to Amazon. All the online, online uh, sites have it. Uh, the, you know, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, the ones that sell books, of course. Uh, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books a Million. Um, you can go to my website. There's links there to buy it. My website is my name. My name is Robert W. Sullivan, IV.com for the fourth. Um, you, there are links there to purchase it. Again, if you just go to Amazon and type the name in, it'll be there. It'll be on the Amazon Canada site, um, England, Germany, France, United States. Um, all my books are there. I have an author uh, central page. So if you go to my Google, just type in my name, that'll come up. Um, and again, all my books, Cinema Symbolism, One, Two, Three, Royal Arch and Pact, um, they're all in print and ebook form. So whatever you want to get, you know, it's up to you. But they're all, all available, all print, all ebook. Knock yourself out. All right. Let's go to the phone lines. John is checking in from Toronto. Good morning, John. Hi. If you think, hope I uh, hope I can finish my spiel before I uh, get hit and run off the road here. Uh, here I'm in the state. Sorry. Um, why don't you say no disrespect, uh, guest of the guest of the year there, Mister Sullivan. Sullivan the third, yeah. Um, Doc is cheap, mommy to say, and I'd appreciate having some proof and evidence uh, with respect to all these movie clips that you speak of. For instance, if you have a website, you can provide it to us right now so we can check out clips that may have put together, which coincide with your um, allegations, which I don't really doubt at all. But I'm just saying. Well, there's that. no allegations here. He's simply talking about a well, you know, a, a well-known. Um, uh, practice by by directors and, and and writers to insert symbolism into film. I mean, they're, they're, that's not an allegation. That's just. I mean, you, you you can watch you can watch The Shining. If you read my book, you can watch The Shining and count the repetition. I mean, I've done it myself. Um, you know the the you know you read the book, watch the movie, you'll see it all. All right. Uh, let's say hi to. Or, oh, Jennifer's on the in the YouTube live chat. Uh, she wants to know about. The stories about Nicole Kidman's father. Uh, this is kind of, you know, drifting off into an area. I don't know that you're. No, I, I saw that. I saw that on the chat. Right. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I, I do. I analyze in Cinema Symbolism 2, I analyze Eyes Wide Shut. And I do analyze in Royal Arch, the ninth gate with Johnny Depp. That's as close as I can get to the number nine and to Nicole Kidman. Right. Her father was uh, allegedly involved in this child sacrifice cult which you know i don't know anything about that really other than that that's that was the rumor that was out there uh picasso wants uh, you to touch on the movie tenant and is it the sator sator square or sator square yeah i've never seen the movie um i've not seen the movie tenant and i do not comment on movies that i have not seen all right um let's see now someone had an interesting question in the youtube live chat as well uh it's not posted up on the uh the skype chat here but it had to do with admiralty law and uh let's see which movie was it, it was one of the star trek movies i think 
Oh, here it is. Uh, Sigma Six. Sigma Six asks, do you see a legal analogy in the movie The Matrix, i.e. Admiralty Law? Remember in the movie, every time they wanted to exit The Matrix, they had to use a landline. I'm not sure what that what the connection is between Admiralty Law. Anyway, uh, any thoughts on that, Robert? No, not really. I know I don't. I don't. I don't. No, I don't have anything on that one. All right, that's kind of a, that's an obscure uh, reference. Admiralty Law and uh, the Matrix. All right, um, fairy tales as solar allegories. What does that mean? Well, right again. This is this is again. We're dealing with the archetypes, and again, what's the most powerful ones? Well, they all come from the heavens, the sun, the moon. Um, and again, you know, you look at, you know, this is something I took on in Cinema Symbolism 2 um, initially, and then I finished up in Cinema Symbolism 3 with Beauty and the Beast. Um, but again, these fairy tales, they're all the same thing, whether it be, the, you know, it's, it's a solar allegory. Um, you know, you get into, you know, the little, the heroine is the dawn, the sun in the morning, you know, you know, she, 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 she falls into the winter months and then unify, you know, is awakened at the vernal equinox by the blonde haired, blue eyed prince. You look at little red riding hood, little red riding hood is the sun cloaked in the wind, in the red cloak, the leaves of autumn falls into winter, gets swallowed by the wolf liberated at the vernal equinox. Um, you know, by the huntsman, the blonde haired, blue eyed prince, um, snow white, same story, you know, Cinderella, you know, trapped by the three winter months, the stepsisters liberated at the vernal equinox by the Prince Charming. It's the same thing. It's the same thing over and over. Beauty and the Beast. You know, the 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 the, the woman is trapped in the wintry castle, um, only to be liberated by the Beast himself when he turns into the handsome Prince at the vernal equinox. The sun resurrected, the sun born again. Same thing, same motif over and over again. Um, and what's funny is if you watch the one movie that I took on in Cinema Symbolism 3, which was the Be- which was Beauty and the Beast, this was the Disney live action one with um, Emma Watson. Um, in, in the Beauty and the Beast song, which is the same song from the 1991 version, they actually added the lyric. Um, they actually knew this. They actually figured this out finally. And they actually added the lyric, something to the effect of like spring, winter turns to spring, something like that. Um, and it's the same thing. It's just the emergence of the sun from the winter months into the spring months. Um, and you'll find this again pervading uh, fairy tales. Uh, this is something I talk about in both the books um, and something that's, you know, again, you're dealing with archetypal imagery, sun, the moon, um, winter, summer months, things like that. Right. All right. So. Uh, we've been talking about different types of symbology, uh, um, Gnostic symbology, Enochian symbology, Hermeticism, uh, alchemical. But there's also, from time to time, we'll see Christian symbology. And the example that you give in the book is actually like something I didn't expect at all. And it, ha- it has to do with all those Sergio Leone spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for a oh, few dollars more. There's Christian sure. symbology there. Sure. Um, well, Sergio Leone was a Roman Catholic, so um, it only serves that there would be Christian imagery in his films. Uh, Martin Scorsese does it again, uses uh, bars heavily from Leone for Gangs of New York, um, uses the same sort of theme, same sort of imagery. Um, yeah, but I mean, uh, you know, you have the um, Blondie character. This is the Clint Eastwood character, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Christ archetype. You have him in the one um, – uh, what is it fistful of dollars um where he you know gets killed you know gets resurrected 
um, goes into the subterranean tomb, gets resurrected and emerges only to defeat, you know, the devil, the Rojas family. Um, same sort of theme carried forward in The Good, the Bad, and the Ugly, where you have Blondie as the Christ figure um, battling the devil, which is uh, the bad. This is Levon Cleef. And, of course, they're competing for the soul of humankind, which is the ugly, which is uh, um, Eli Wallach. And the reason that he is called the ugly is this is humankind in the state after the fall of Eden. So the whole movie is a religious allegory. It's God versus the devil um, competing for the souls of humanity, um, which is represented by the ugly. Um, and again, this same theme, um, Martin Scorsese uses this exact same imagery, these exact same themes in his Gangs of New York movie, where the Daniel Day-Lewis character is obviously the devil. Um, the new Amst the Amsterdam character is obviously the Christ figure battling for the soul of New York, as it were. Um, it's uh, very interesting. And uh, yeah, the Christ figure turns up from time to time. I mean, JC, the initials, John Coffey from the Green Mile, who resurrects the dead mouse and heals the sick and dies for the sins of the South. John Carpenter, JC Christ was a carpenter, uh, from, uh, the day the earth still comes down from the heavens to warn mankind about their error of their ways. Um, James Cole, JC Jesus Christ comes back in time to save humankind, um, from a, uh, deadly virus. Of course, no one believes him. Um, good. Yeah. So yeah, Jesus Christ turns up from time to time in cinema. No question about it. Is there a, um, a a movie that you find is just almost uh, inexhaustible in, in in the number of layers, in the number of uh, symbols, and so forth? The one that I keep coming back to is, and the one that I literally, Richard, that I watch it every time. Every time I watch it, I seem to pick up something new. Is Darren Aronofsky's Black Swan? That's the one that to me is almost never ending. There is so much going on in that movie. Um, you could probably write a book about it itself. In fact, when I did Black Swan, I actually split it in half. I took it on in Cinema Symbolism 1. I took it on in Cinema Symbolism 2. I find myself constantly coming back to it. Um, I talk about it in Cinema Symbolism 3 because literally every time I seem to watch it, I seem to see something new in it. Um, and it's just one of those like masterpieces that – you know, just as like a never-ending study, you could probably write a book about it by itself. Maybe that's your next. Uh, that maybe that is your next book, right? Yeah, well, I'm going right now. I'm going back through the other four and just making some cleanups, tweaks to it. I might throw in a little more information. I know um, when I'm doing Cinema Symbolism Part One, I want to throw in some more information from The Wizard of Oz. Um, so that's kind of my next project right now. Is I want to tweak. Um, and but the reason for this was with the Royal Arch book. I want to do another book on masonry, but it doesn't work. Um, I, I couldn't get it to work, so I'm going back to Royal Arch. I'm going to add in some of the stuff I subtracted out. And I figure, well, while I'm doing that, let me make some edits to Cinema Symbolism 1 and 2 and Pack with the Devil. I want to clean up a couple things, um, some things that I, I thought didn't come out quite, quite right, and uh, some things that I want to add in. So that's my next project. That's what I'm doing right now. But, yeah, there's definitely going to be probably a Cinema Symbolism 4, some more fiction. We'll see. Fantastic. Robert, always a delight. I'll speak to you on uh, Coast in July. Looking forward to that. That's right. I'm looking forward to it. And again, thank you so much for having me on uh, The Conspiracy Show tonight. It was my pleasure, and uh, I look forward to Coast to Coast. 
Fantastic. Robert W. Sullivan IV, Cinema Symbolism Three: The Mysteries of Occult, Hollywood Unveiled. All right, back next week with another brand new program. Hope you'll be along for the ride. My thanks to Ryan and Carlos. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.